It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by Dahlia Lithwick. She is the Supreme Court reporter that we trust, and she is here to talk to us about everything that happened last night. Dahlia, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us. I, I'm good. I had like two hours of sleep because of that Texas order. <laughs> I know. That was- I'm a little... I was... It- I'm a little punchy. I'm good. Perfect. Channel it all into this. Always punchy. I wake up. We we do this show punchy every day. Punchy. (laughs) That's what you get when you have a morning show and you're not morning people. Morning people. You get you get punchy morning show hosts. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Good to talk to you. Okay. So tell us what happened last night. Like, what is? Just tell us your opinion of what happened last night because that's the one that I will adopt. Uh, I mean, it's a it's it's a it's movement in a case that has just been kind of a staring contest for over a month. Uh, We finally had a thing happen, a good thing happen, which is that a federal district court judge, Robert Pittman, uh, issued this 113 page injunction just stopping SB8, stopping anyone Uh, from enforcing it. And so, you know, in the very short term, we finally have an action taken that precludes Texas from terrorizing pregnant people. And so that's a good thing. That's my opinion. And you should adopt it as your own. (laughs) Good. (laughs) That was basically where I was coming in this morning. It also feels like it's um, we, what did we call it? It was like a step in the right direction with absolutely no idea whether we could take another step. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's it's it's, you know, if past is predictor of future, it is going to vault up to the very, very conservative Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal that has already tied Judge Pittman's hands and in fact canceled his trial that was supposed to go into effect right before uh, SB8 became law. It'll go up to the Fifth Circuit and then (laughs) the good news is uh, then it goes up to the Supreme Court, which is not as uh, conservative as the Fifth Circuit, yet still has a six to three conservative supermajority. So there you go. (laughs) That's the that's the bad news uh, that the avenues forward, given the makeup of the federal bench right now, post Trump, uh, the, the the long game doesn't look good. Right. So, Zerlina had noted the discrepancy between the like single paragraph that had written been written in support of this law versus the like hundred and thirty page decision issued by. Pittman will does that and and I'm sure that we'll get like we know what the Fifth Circuit is going to do right there's really there's no question that the Fifth Circuit overrules Pittman and reestablishes this law as constitutional right am I right in just assuming that that's a fait accompli I think so yep okay so would the Supreme Court then which will ultimately hear it does the weight of Pittman's decision 
combined with a possible overreach or uh, an uninformed Fifth Circuit opinion? Like, does it matter who did their homework better, I guess, is my question. Like, does the Supreme Court care that one is very well-reasoned and the other one is lunacy? The best evidence we have, I think, that the Supreme Court cares about its own spectacular self-own on September 1st (laughs) when it declined to enjoin this thing is that uh, Justice Sam Alito thought it was a good idea to go to Notre Dame University last week and give, you know, a borderline insane speech defending the court's actions on the shadow docket and, and doing in violation, by the way, of judicial uh, uh, ethics canon. Yeah, I thought so. Talking about this case, like talking mm-hmm. explicitly about why it was okay that the court did what it's what it did uh, in SB eight. So I think the reason to believe the court might care a little when it comes up the second time is how desperately, desperately, desperately the justices have fanned out to defend the incredibly dumb thing it did the first time. Yeah, that's okay. that's the thing I think about a lot when I think about um, this particular case is part of why we're uncertain. I mean, I think the Supreme Court, there's never like, we know exactly what's going to happen like at the oral argument. That's not usually what happens. But I think in this case, there's more gray areas only because of the the weird nature of how this law is enforced. The fact that it was like openly written to flout (laughs) um, judicial scrutiny and the fact that the justices are so openly partisan. Like, I think that's what makes this moment different, right? I mean, it, we're, we're talking about um, Alito uh, and Amy Coney Barrett at a Mitch McConnell event talking about how we're not partisan hacks at an event introduced by Mitch McConnell. I mean, I feel like the court feels different than it has in the past. Is that just my perception or is that actually something that's really happening? I don't think that's just your perception. In fact, I think if you just read the term openers, the kind of curtain raisers for the term that came out this weekend before the first Monday in October, I've never, ever covered the court for 20 years, seen a term open with this level of not just anxiety displayed by the court about public opinion, which is in the toilet, right? I mean, every single um, court, preview opens or closes with the court has the lowest popularity rating it's had since Gallup started polling, right? Depending on right. which poll you're looking at, it's 37, 40%. It's an, and that that's dropped unbelievably quickly. And I think the best evidence you have that the court is really on edge is that, you know, you've mentioned Justice Alito. We've mentioned Amy Coney Barrett. We've also seen Clarence Thomas in the last two weeks out um, giving speeches saying, you know, we're not partisan hacks. The press are partisan hacks. And of course, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer continuing his charm offensive. So you have almost half of the court in the weeks, two weeks before the term begins, out there telling America that it's the media's fault, not the court's fart, p- fault. I just said fart. That's amazing. <laughs> not the court. We got punchy fart. here on this morning show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, just the fact that they're in agreement that they're doing nothing worth note, but that the press is, is doing it. And I feel like the anxiety the court is feeling about the fact that its rankings are down the 
toilet is, and, and maybe this goes to your question, but the court could have, if it hadn't done what it did on September 1st in Texas, sailed in to the 2021 term where it's going to, and I know we're going to talk about this, you know, probably expand gun rights, probably uh, uh, do real, real violence to whatever's left of Casey and Roe, uh, promote religious liberty claims that are crazy, dismantle the administrative state. Like it's, it was going to go into the most consequential term with popularity ratings in the high 50s. Mm. <laughs> That's what it mm. could have done. And it chose instead to do a whole bunch of really stupid, sneaky things badly on the shadow docket, and then to turn around and deny that there's anything wrong with doing it in unsigned, badly reasoned orders, and then to further blame the press. And that's how they chose to do this term. So this is like when I say spectacular self-own, <laughs> none of this needed to happen. They could have done all the violence and damage they wanted to do. And we would have noticed it the last week in June. Right. Right. Well, so what? why did they do that? What happened? <laughs> you know, I'm trying to figure it out. Um, I think, you know, my sort of slightly fatuous, but I think truthful answer is that the justices don't have an army of PR consultants and, you know, pollsters and advisors because they think they're gods. And they're like, who could possibly know the mind of the American public better than me? And so when, for instance, Justice Alito witnesses the blowback, right, of Amy Coney Barrett flying to Kentucky, sitting next to Mitch McConnell at the McConnell Center, setting his greatness, the man who said the single best thing he ever did that he's most proud of is blocking the Scalia seat mm -hmm. from being filled right. by Mary Garland. And she's celebrating him by giving a speech where she says, we're not partisan hacks. A good thing Justice Alito could have derived from the fallout was not to do the exact same thing also off the record in a speech that was initially closed to recordings and to um, uh, 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 any uh, uh, meaningful press scrutiny. And then <laughs> he was like, you know, I think I'm going to do that thing, but I'm going to do it worse. Um, okay. Right. Okay. Good, good call. So they, I, I just think they have whatever, like the savviness that is required to move in public spaces and to navigate big public controversy, they don't have. They're really yeah. good at writing opinions. That's what they can do. Right. Except so for funny. when they do them on the shadow docket. Right. When right, they're right. really bad at writing opinions. When they don't when the, when they definitely do not want to write an opinion about it. They just want to sort of put out a paragraph and hide. Like and go back in. Um one of the things I've been thinking a lot about too is that, you know, obviously Roe is one of the biggest issues before the court this term, but it's not the only one that is, you know, major in terms of civil rights implications. And it feels to me like this, the court is sort of like the last bash, like the house is like the first um, chamber of our, of our Congress that is majority pro-choice. It's the first majority pro-choice Congress in American history. Um, you have more diversity, um, rising the ranks there. And I feel like the, the, you know, the hierarchy goes up to the Supreme Court and that's like the last bastion of this like old way of 
doing things. And I it may be, be because they have lifetime appointments that it'll just remain that way. But is there ever a scenario in which the legislature and the Congress are much, much more progressive and completely out of step with the Supreme Court? Like they're passing laws that the Supreme Court's overturning because they have a 6-3 majority and the lifetime appointments. But 20 years from now, we're trying to do climate action because we have a progressive Congress because everything's like burning to the ground. And we've like, we're like, okay, guys, finally, we won't reelect Mitch McConnell or whatever. Uh, um, but, you know, down the road, the Supreme Court is completely out of step with where the rest of our federal government is. I mean, I think the historic answer is that the court has almost unfailingly through history been out of step with the federal government mm. and that the court was built to be right a counter majoritarian check mm-hmm. it was by design it's not just the lifetime appointments it's you know it's at every level right mm-hmm. we have I, I mean the comedy of the court today is that most of the republicans sitting on the court the conservatives sitting on the courts were appointed by presidents who did not win the majority of uh, votes and then ratified by a wildly malapportioned Senate that does not represent the majority of Americans, right? So already just as a structural matter, you have baked in much like the filibuster, much like Mm -hmm. the electoral college, you have a system that bakes in minoritarian uh, rule. And by the way, that can be great, right? Because when Mm -hmm. the court gets out of step with the country in good ways, you get Brown v. Board, right? Right, right, right. Obergefell. So I think like as a critique of the court, sometimes you want uh, a court that is out of step with Mm -hmm. the popular will because the popular will is racist and stupid. But I think the problem we have now is not just that it is preserving minority, you know, values. And particularly if you look at the polling, even in Texas around SB8, everybody hates SB8, even, you know, people who are wildly, wildly uh, anti-abortion hate this law. And I think that it's not just that the court is out of step with majority rule. It's that the court is uh, really beginning to lock in minority rule in doctrinal ways. And so Mm -hmm. that's the part that scares me is that when you have a court that is setting aside, you know, in Shelby County, uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, and then this last term in Brnovich, setting aside Section 2 of the Voting Mm -hmm. Rights Act and blessing really partisan gerrymandering, you have a court that is working to entrench minority rule in ways that go beyond just you know the passions of the day and so right. i think that's a very long and structural answer to your question but i think it's not that the court is just a neutral observer and right. that it is pressing minoritarian preferences it is building in a constitutional structure of voting and representation and reapportionment and redistricting that will bake in minority rule. And that is the thing that I think we have to be really, really mindful of. Thank you for explaining that, because I have I have had a hard time with like the fact that the court is so wildly out of step with popular will concerns me, obviously. But I do remember a time like not that long ago 
when you know the, the marriage equality was not was not the popular will of the country. And I do believe the court was right in deciding what it did. So thank you for explaining that because this does feel different in terms of not, it's not, it's not about just not representing popular will. Okay. That was super helpful. Is expansion our only way to rectify that? Or are we, are we stuck with minoritarian rule baked into the doctrine if we don't? I think, and, and I, you know, really have reluctantly come around on expansion. I've spent most of my career balking at it. I think that, look, there's a commission. Biden has this blue ribbon commission that is studying a whole bunch of other alternatives, you know, whether it's term limits, 18 year fixed terms, you know, having uh, uh, jurisdiction stripping, right, where there are some cases the court just doesn't get the last word on. There are a whole bunch of options. My view is that we uh, do not have the luxury to wait around 18 years uh, for Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh to <laughs> leave the court. Right. And I mm -hmm. don't think most of the measures that are being considered by this panel answer the fact that just about a year ago, we had four justices who were willing to throw out votes in the 2020 election, like legally cast votes. And so my view of the thing is, if we had five, six, seven years to tinker, we might be able to come up with any number of cool uh, responses. But I think we are in existential, existential, problem with the 2024 election, with the way the court might have intervened even in the last election. And so my view is that uh, it's time to really, really talk about it. And, and this is my coda to that. And I think it's important. I think failing to talk about it, taking it off the table, suggesting that it's too radical and, you know, we're not even really going to think about it has been one of the things that has emboldened this supermajority. In other words, I don't think it's a net neutral to say, oh, that's just too much. You know, when FDR threatened to do it, he almost destroyed the court and his own presidency. It's true. It's a radical, bold act. But I think that the act of saying, you know, it's okay when Mitch McConnell <laughs> changes the composition and the size of the court, it's okay for a year that he held mm -hmm. it open. Uh, that wasn't that wasn't radical. But when we do it, that's insane. And I think the act of really leaning out of that conversation as 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 people, as citizens, has meant that the court was like, you know what we should do on September 1st? We should just let that Texas law go into effect. Mm -hmm. What are they going to do? And so I think there's a real merit to keeping the issue alive, if only because I think the court modulates its behavior when it knows that we are watching. Mm. Well, we are. Dahlia Lithwick, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I feel smarter yes. um, and a little angrier already. <laughs> Angry is good. Be, be, is be in your good. anger. Sit with yes. your anger. Um, yep. Thanks for having me. It's always, it's always really Thank you. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Signal Boost podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with more news.